6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, the Ark of the Covenant. Since we had 15 of a 16 session agenda, we have an addenda that I can add here. I deliberately planned this because I thought you would, this would be incomplete without exploring a conjecture. This is a suspicion rather than a teaching, but it's one that deserves some attention. And it has to do with the Ark of the Covenant. Is it possible that this is a relic with a future? Most people dismiss it as lost forever or what have you. Now, you may recall when we were studying the visit of the Queen of Sheba, that we took the occasion to acquaint you with a legend that is formalized and embodied in the constitution of Ethiopia, what I'll call the Ethiopian legend. It's the Ethiopian claim to the queen, that the Queen of Sheba uh, had a child when she visited Solomon. And this whole uh, claim is uh, detailed in an epic called Kebra Nagast, the glory of the kings, if you will. It's based on the visit described in the Bible, but it adds that the queen bore a son, Menelik, sometimes called Menelik I, uh, to King Solomon. And when he was grown, he visited his father who anointed him to rule in Africa. And he sent the sons of his own counselors to assist Menelik as king in Africa. And the young men were reluctant to leave the famous temple in Jerusalem, especially as it contained the Ark of the Covenant. So the legend is that in secret they removed the Ark and left a replica and took it with them to Ethiopia. Now one problem with this legend is if the legend is correct, the chronicler is wrong. Because the chronicler has the ark around in the days of Josiah, long after Solomon. So that doesn't quite compute, if you will. But for centuries, the Ethiopian tradition has been maintained in that what they have has been, has been preserved and guarded for over 2,000 years in the, in the compound in Aksum. And uh, now, this Ethiopian epic was compiled and recorded in writing during the 13th century. But its real origin is extremely difficult to determine. There is one pillar in a very key palace in Ethiopia that is sealed. And we suspect that if you could break that seal and see what that pillar has, it might puncture this history, because I think this history is contrived for political reasons. See, from the restoration of the Solomonic dynasty around 1270 until the death of their last emperor, Haile Selassie, the emperors of Ethiopia claim descent from Solomon, the Queen of Sheba. It's my personal suspicion. Since this all emerges about the 13th century, it was contrived to give the kings of Ethiopia a claim of Solomonic um, descendancy. And that's just a, a cynical suspicion, because my point is that this legend, because it's disprovable from a biblical point of view, that causes biblical scholars to totally disregard the Ethiopian claims, and understandably. Haile Selassie who died in 75, was the grand nephew of Emperor Menelik II, the last emperor of Ethiopia, who ruled 
1930 to 1974, and, uh, or lived, I should say. Solomonic claim was part of the Constitution in 1955. It was, it, it was embodied in the, in the Constitution of Ethiopia. So it's, it's very much something they cling to. Now, the Solomonic claim of Ethiopia is widely regarded among Bible scholars as non-biblical for lots of reasons. It's not taken seriously. Because the ark was around long after Solomon, namely 2 Chronicles 35 is one example. Jeremiah 3.16 has a verse we'll look at in a little bit, which says that the ark of the covenant will no longer be remembered nor come to mind. And many of us, me included, used to quote that in rebuttal of the Ethiopian story. Many years ago, when this Ethiopian legend was kind of popular and people were talking about it, some of us, me included, dismissed it. Well, if Jeremiah says it will no longer be remembered nor come to mind. So that was just sort of a way of not wasting our time on that. Let's get on to more fruitful things. I hadn't read the next verse. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, what's been overlooked by everyone is that they may have the ark. It got there by a different path than the legend would have it. You follow me? Dismiss the legend for a minute, but let's, let's uh, uh, assume for discussion purposes, they may really have the ark. When Bob Cornuke, a close friend of mine who has great connections in Ethiopia, um, he had an opportunity to meet with the president of Ethiopia, and he asked him, do you, do you believe you have the ark? And the guy looked him right in, in the eyes and said, Bob, I have the resources to check this out. I can tell you we know we have. That doesn't mean they really do, but it means they really believe they do. You follow me? Okay, so let's see what's going on here. Let's talk about the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. And a gift that the Bible talks about that the Ethiopians are going to present to the Messiah when he rules on Zion. There are at least six theories of where the Ark is. The, the, the Ethiopian legend is that it was taken by Menelik I to Ethiopia during Solomon's apostasy. Solomon went apostate, you remember? And, and it was that, that's when, presumably, Menelik I took the Ark to Ethiopia. But we know it's around uh, the temple long after that. Some say it was taken by uh, Pharaoh Shishak, which is alluded to in 2 Chronicles 12, that there was some kind of an uh, invasion and so forth. Um, that was, and and sh the Shishak thing was the thing that the movie, the popular uh, movie spoof, was built around. There's another, there's a series of traditions that it was hidden by Jeremiah on Mount Nebo, because 2 Maccabees makes an allusion to that. But 2 Maccabees is not an inspired but well, 1 Maccabees is a very useful historical book. 2 Maccabees is not really taken seriously by Bible scholars as being an inspired book of the canon for a number of reasons. The most common theory in Israel is that it's hidden presently under the Temple Mount right now as we speak. Temple Institute argues that. The official rabbinical posture in Israel is that it's down there hidden under the Temple Mount. Others that it was taken by the Babylonians many centuries ago and was destroyed. But the sixth one, the one we're going to explore tonight, was it taken to Egypt during Manasseh's atrocities that are recorded in 2 Chronicles 35 and so on. Well, let's take a look at this. Question, why did Josiah persist in attacking Pharaoh Necho? Well, if, the, if, we, if we assume that the Levites took the ark out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, out of the country, the natural place for them to seek refuge would be under Pharaoh Necho in Egypt. And that might be why, even though Josiah ordered them to bring it back, they didn't. And he's after the ark, is why he's going after Pharaoh Necho. Why did Pharaoh Necho feel that the, ark, that the God was on his side? 
There is archaeological evidence that the tabernacle was set up on Elephantine Island during that period, that the Levites had it down there, and somehow he got communication directly from God as to what he was doing. Wow, if that's true. How could Pharaoh Necho have heard instructions, quote, from the mouth of God, as the chronicler records? That would be one way, at least. By the way, something everybody overlooks. Pharaoh Necho was not Egyptian. He's part of what they call the 25th dynasty, the Ethiopian dynasty. He was Ethiopian. Many of us may not realize that the powerful military heritage in Africa was Ethiopian. There was a time when they were the ones that were feared as militant, uh, military people. So is it possible there's a continuing trust here? There is a 2,400-year history of, sac of a sacred relic guarded day and night by the Ethiopians from its tenure initially at Elephantine Island in Upper Egypt, about 642 B.C. Then it moved upriver uh, to, uh, to uh, Lake Tana, there's a, which had many islands. One of those islands is Tanakirkos Island. It moved there in 470 B.C. stayed there for eight centuries until it was moved to its present location at its compound in Aksum, Ethiopia. And uh, the, Ethio the Ethiopians believe that it's their mission to guard it until they present it to the Messiah when he rules on Mount Zion. What's interesting about that commitment of theirs, it is detailed in an entire chapter of Isaiah 18, and it's also alluded to in Zephaniah 3.10, and there are indirect allusions, several dozen of them, all through the Scripture. Well, that's interesting. So we went on an expedition to check some of this out. We did it more than once. We went, uh, I think, two or three times. So this is a trip report, a composite trip report. The ark apparently was taken by the Levites out of Jerusalem, up the Nile, to Elephantine Island, which in those days was the boundary between Upper and Lower Egypt, and it was the capital of Egypt. That's where Pharaoh Necho would have had his base of operations at Elephantine Island. And uh, fortified capital, located there about 630 B.C., stayed there till about 430 uh, B.C., two centuries. It was the early advanced outpost of Egypt, southernmost border town, fortified installation, serving as the first dynasty fortress. Its military importance was significant during the 25th dynasty, which is Pharaoh Necho's dynasty. The temple to Yadhevathe served Jewish uh, colony uh, prior to the Persian occupations. And this is, this is archaeologically be, uh, uh, confirmed. You can find references to it in the Elephantine official guidebook by the German Institute of Archaeology in Cairo, 1998, was where we confirmed that. We actually went there, the old Cataract Hotel, which is so famous in, in uh, writings and so forth. This is the Nile at that region. This is Elephantine Island. And there's extensive archaeological excavations there which confirm that, the, that there was a cadre of Levites there in the 6th and uh, 7th century B.C. And uh, uh, apparently the tabernacle was put in operation there. Okay, so we go from Elephantine Island up the Nile to Lake Tana. By now you're in, deeply into... Uh, um, Ethiopian territory, and it remained at Tanakirkus Island for 800 years. So we decided to go there, and uh, up, the, up the Nile. They still have, they still use boats made of bulrushes that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 18. And uh, kind of fun. 
And there are hippos in that water, which are dangerous. You don't want to go near the hippos. Um, but there's town of Kirkus Island as we approach it. And climb up there. And it's very primitive. These people are very, very... They're dirt poor, but very happy people. Very interesting. And uh, we had a chance to... We saw the posts where a tabernacle may have been established, it would seem. There's also carvings there by the Knights Templar, so they also had a great interest in this area in, the, in, the, in a more recent time. But uh, this is the vault they let us get into where they brought out some of the tools which they maintain were from that early era. That's Bob Cornuke examining some of them. And uh, in their Bible, they have stories and illustrations of Mary and Joseph and the baby visiting Tanakirkus Island while they were down in Egypt fleeing Herod. I think that's kind of interesting. And this is the key monk there. When the Discovery Channel wanted to get on that island, they had to get Bob Cornuke to get them on, because the monks won't not normally let anyone on that island. But uh, anyway, it was there for eight centuries before it then moved to its present location in Oxum. And uh, so it is there, presumably going to stay there until they can present what they have to the Messiah when he rules at Jerusalem. And this is the compound that is known as the St. Mary's Church of Zion. It's more, it resembles a military compound. It's incredibly well guarded. It is my understanding that it goes down at least seven levels and there are tunnels all the way to the Red Sea. So it's, it's a, a part of an underground defensive arrangement. They've been guarding it for 2,400 years, day and night. And... Uh, once a year at Timcat, they bring out not the ark, they bring out a ceremonial replica, which it purports to be like the Ten Commandments thing. It's just a ceremonial thing. The guardian, there's a guardian that never leaves that spot from the time he's assigned to be guardian until he dies. There's a young boy that's assigned to him. If you're a woman that has barren and you pray for a child and the Lord brings your child, that boy that belongs to the church. And so he goes into a special school of boys of that kind, sort of like choir boy kinds of things. They assist in various ways. But the choicest of them gets assigned to the guardian, and he stays with the guardian day and night. When the guardian dies, he takes his place. And he will stay there until he's replaced. They've had this unbroken succession for 2,400 years of someone staying with the Ark of the Covenant um, that's in there, apparently. And so... Um, but once a year, they celebrate all this by taking out just a replica for ceremonial purposes at Timcat, and they march down um, to the riverside. Now, what's interesting, I want you to picture this. Picture yourself standing on a hill, surrounded by people dressed in white, Ethiopians, dirt poor, but very happy, singing in the spirit, round the clock for two days prior, and round the clock two days during Timcat. These are Levites celebrating the baptism of Christ. Can you get that? Levites celebrate. This whole ceremony is intended to, to symbolize going down to the riverside where they do a bunch of readings and stuff and come back. It's supposed to represent Christ's baptism in the Jordan. Um, and they're, they're, they're just spontaneous um, singing, dancing, Round the clock, two days prior, two days during, Timcat. And uh, it's, really, it's really quite an experience.
And I could go on, but that's basically the perspective. In Isaiah 18, Woe to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, that sendeth ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the waters, saying, Go ye swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from the beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers divide. All ye inhabitants of the world. Wait a minute here. They're going to give the Messiah something that the entire world is going to be watching for. Wow. All ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers of, on the earth, see ye when he lifteth up an ensign on the mountains, and when he bloweth a trumpet, hear ye. In that time shall, ye, shall the present be brought, the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts, of a people tall and smooth of skin, from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to the, land, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts in uh, the Mount, Mount Zion. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 10, there's a similar allusion. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my supplements, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. And that's kind of interesting. Bring mine offering. The word bring there is yabal, which means to bear or carry as in a royal possession. And uh, offering is a gift or tribute or present. So then there's, there's other verses like this. So, Okay. Jeremiah has this strange verse that I've used myself to rebuke all this, or to re refute all this. And it shall come to pass that when ye have multiplied or increased in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. Okay, the ark of the covenant's over. Bad, it's over. Past, old, you know, it's over, right? We understand from the Ethiopians that the ark itself is deteriorating. It's carried inside a marble carrier of some kind in there. But the ark was wood covered with gold, and the, go the wood is deteriorating. So it's, it's very, very, uh, uh, it's deteriorating. So it's not the ark that's the issue. Uh, we tried to explain this to the Ethiopians. They were polite, but didn't buy it. I'll come back to that. Um, the ark isn't the issue. What's on top of the ark? Mercy seat. And most of us haven't done our homework on the mercy seat. We tend to lump those together as one thing. No, they're always described separately in the Scripture. In fact, the Holy of Holies is defined as the location of the mercy seat. It's obviously the location of the ark because that's what the mercy seat sits on. But the mercy seat's the dominant thing here. I used to use this verse to Grant Jeffries and some others who were promoting the Ethiopian, versions of the Ethiopian story. I didn't read the next verse. At that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it, and the name of the Lord to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. And it goes on. Again and again and again, you start taking the throne that Christ is going to rule in Zion. It's a whole other story. What we suspect is that the mercy seat is destined to be the throne from which Christ rules. And what the Ethiopians are destined to present to Christ is the package, but the key part of it is the mercy seat, not the ark, the traditional Ark of the Covenant. We don't need the Ark of the Covenant because it was there to give the Lord a place to dwell in. And as Matthew 12, 6 says, greater than the temple, the one greater than the temple is here, Jesus Christ. Okay. But we find all kinds of references that he's going to sit on a throne. And you start collecting those throne references, and it gets very, very interesting.
the throne of the Lord. See, the ark is no longer the focus of worship in Jerusalem. Indeed, it'll be replaced by the throne of the Lord as all nations shall be gathered to it. The ark and the mercy seat are always described separately in the Scripture. Yes, they're physically there, as we all know, but they're always described separately. Something kind of interesting. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do that blood, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and in front of it. And in front of it. The mercy seat. This verse speaks of the priest sprinkling the blood of the sanctified animal on the mercy seat in payment of the sins of the people. This was done once a year on the specific day after great ceremonial preparations known as Yom, Yom Kippur. Okay. Jesus Christ, known as the Lamb of God, the blood sacrificed for our sins. Of course, is what it all symbolizes. So the mercy seat is certainly suitable for his throne. Now, it's interesting. Why do they sprinkle the blood between the cherubim and in front of it. That's what the Leviticus 16:15 says. Well, there's a strange clue in Isaiah in Ezekiel 43, verse 6 and 7. Ezekiel says, I heard him speaking unto me out of the temple, and the man stood by me. This is in the millennial context, obviously. And he said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, and my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile. Neither they nor the kings by their whoredom, by the carcasses of their kings in their high places. I want you to notice this. The, the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. The imagery that seems to be suggested here is when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat with the two cherubim. He's sprinkling the blood between the cherubim and in front. The imagery that's suggested here is that God is sitting there. In fact, when the Shekinah was there, that would speak to Moses. They had a dialogue. That, that, that it's as if God is sitting there, and the reason he's sprinkling the blood, because of the soles, soles, Ezekiel ties this to the soles of the feet. See, the other thing that, no one's quite sure what the ark looked like. We know that they had these two cherubim on top, and most artists that render it, render it quite fancifully, that they're up-touching. It's our understanding that the two cherubim, their wings are touching but they're bowed down and they're touching low so as to make a seat. And there are such uh, uh, relics in early Egypt of that kind of design, interestingly enough. In any case, uh, that's all is conjectural. This verse is a prophecy specific to the second coming of Christ known as the Messianic reign, the Ezekiel passage. We see in this verse that God speaks from the temple and from his throne and the place where he shall dwell in the midst of the children forever of Israel forever. The place where he will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. So that's the, mess that's the messianic picture. Okay, so we've got a perspective, a possibility. I don't want to oversell it here. But we might take an interesting look at Acts chapter 8. There's a very strange event that occurs in Acts chapter 8. Philip is in Samaria. There is a great revival going on, a lot of fruit being born here, and God takes Philip out of there and tells him to attach himself to this Ethiopian treasurer in Acts chapter 8. We'll pick it up by verse 26, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, 
And go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch or officer of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Now, if he's the treasurer of Ethiopia, what would that treasure include? Among other things, the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, it would seem. So he had charge of all her treasure, and he had come, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. But he's on his way home confused. So he came to worship, but he's on his way home confused. He was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. And we know from the, what's coming here that he was reading from Isaiah 52 and 53, it turns out. In any case, he was reading from Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Which wasn't trivial, by the way, because it wasn't alone out in the desert, as you see in your Sunday school books. He had protection. He had, a, he had military support. But he somehow got access to this guy. And Philip ran hither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And the Ethiopian will say, How can I unless someone explains it to me? Well, let's stop for a minute and let's read what he was reading. We know he was reading from Isaiah 53, but I'm going to suggest to you or remind you that the chapter divisions are our divisions. We don't know exactly. We know it included Isaiah 53. Let's start a little earlier. Let's read starting at chapter 52 and a few verses. And imagine yourself being this Ethiopian official, this treasurer, this eunuch. Scripture said, Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. So he's a eunuch that keep himself clean. That was his commitment to his profession. But he, he bears what? The vessels of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music